we're going to continue this week looking through the seven uh, churches in Revelation. And I realized, right, as I was uh, writing today's sermon earlier this week, I went, we're looking at the message to Philadelphia. So I wore my Philadelphia tie today to commemorate it. I promise I didn't plan it this way. But God has a sense of humor. Especially since Philadelphia is one of the lesser cities that we're talking about. Make as many jokes as you'd like to, but not while I'm around. Let's read it. Revelation 3, uh, verses 7 through 13, and then we're going to unpack it. Revelation 3, uh, 7 through 13. It reads, into the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power, and I've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the, the, name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go ahead and put up the next slide, Ian. I think I kept the maps in there. Again, just as a reference, this is the area of the world that we're in. There's Italy, there's uh, Greece, and then the, the large thing of dots to your right, that's uh, where the cities are. Go ahead to the next one. And this is exactly where we are, a little bit closer. So as you can see, we were in Ephesus, we went up to Smyrna, Pergamum, or Pergamos, you know, came down, and now we're in Philadelphia. We only have one more left after this week in Laodicea. So we're in Philadelphia this week. Philadelphia is about 38 miles southeast of Sardis, and as I said, it, was, it is one of the lesser cities of the seven that Christ writes this letter to, right? You remember, Ephesus, right, we said is kind of like Las Vegas, if it had a port, but it's that type of city. And then we looked at Smyrna, and we said, you know, that's kind of like a New York City sort of thing. And we went up and talked about uh, all of those, and they all have different things. You know, Ephesus has the temple of Artemis and this and that, and they all have these different things that make them, even Thyatira from last week, or Sardis from last week, I apologize, was known for its dying. So it had a craft that people went there for. Philadelphia was known for nothing. Yeah, yeah. Think of it as the Scranton of Pennsylvania, right? Pennsylvania has, you know, Pittsburgh. It has the actual Philadelphia now around today, which is a big city now. Harrisburg, you know. Even the state college area is, is big. And then up in the northeast corner, you've just got Scranton. And what is Scranton known for? The office and coal. Something that's been obsolete for a hundred years and something that's not even a good show. That's the most controversial thing I've ever said in a sermon. It's a city, and you've heard of it. 
but you don't really think of it as this metropolis. That's what Philadelphia is in that area. It does have its own uh, patron god, if you want to call it that. Most of these cities did back then. And it's God that it was the center of worship for was Dionysus or Dionysus, depending on how you want to say it. And he was the Greek god, Bacchus in Roman, the Greek god of wine, drunkenness, parties, that sort of stuff. The story behind him goes that he was just a man who invented wine and Zeus was so happy about it, he made him a god. Apparently, that's all it takes. So there we go. So, so in this letter, we don't see necessarily something that is like, okay, does this city have something it deals with? Like we have in you know, Ephesus and then again in Smyrna and stuff like that. Not really. But if I had to take a guess, and I'm trying to make an educated guess here. I would say that the people of this city probably struggled with drunkenness. Why? Look at their God that they worship. It would make sense. It's not a hill I'm willing to die on. It's not something that I'm like, yes, this is it. But if I had to make a guess, I would guess that alcohol and the consumption thereof in mass quantities was a big issue in the city of Philadelphia. Now, one more thing before we go into point two and start actually unpacking this. In the very beginning there, it says, He who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David. What is the key of David? Most scholars do not believe it is an actual key like the key to death in Hades that he went and got when he had been crucified the three days that he was dead. Most scholars believe that it's just a symbol of power, of authority, right? Jesus came through the line of David, which most of the kings of Israel came from. And so they, the, 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 the most scholars believe that this is put in there to show, and the people would have known, this is a symbol of his power, of who he is, his authority, his kingship, his royalty. So that's the key of David. Now let's unpack this. So number two in your first note, an open door. An open door. I love this, right? Because in the beginning he says, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Church, Christ is in the business of opening doors, not windows. You know, I've often heard, you know, I'm just oh, look at all the windows. No, don't look out the windows because you're just going to get glimpses of stuff that makes you jealous. Keep walking until you find the door he's opened and no one can shut it. There's nothing on heaven, on earth, or in hell that's going to shut a door that Christ wants to remain open. Now here's the thing. For some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, in most of my life, I have been the one that my peers go to for counsel and wisdom. I never got it, especially when they asked me relationship questions. I was like, I'm single, yo. I don't have an answer to this. And they're like, yeah, but you know this stuff. I'm like, at that time, when I was in high school, I was like, I'd been in one bad relationship. I don't know. Oh, but what do I do? All right, fine. Here we go. I had a couch when I was an RA in my dorm room. I had a couch. It was my counseling couch. You could come in, and if you sat on that couch, you could say anything you wanted to. We would talk. It didn't mean that it wouldn't go somewhere if you were saying, you know, I'm going to kill myself. I had to take that somewhere. But you did not have to fear. I wasn't going to report you for cursing. I wasn't going to report you for this or that. If you came to me and said, you know, I'm really struggling with this sin struggle, I would go, okay, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how to help. It was my counseling couch. 
The question that I got more than anything in high school and college and even now is, how do I know what to do with my life? What is the will of God for my life? Yada, yada, yada. Whatever, whatever you want to right there. That's the basis of the question. And my answer to them became this. It's something my dad told me when I was younger, and it stuck with me, like a lot of things he said. Do what God has asked you to do in the place he has asked you to do it until he tells you to move. We're always looking ahead. What do we do next? What do we got to do next? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? Where's the next open door? Maybe there isn't one for 30, 40 years. Maybe God just wants you to sit in that living room for a while and do what he's asked you to do while you're there. Right? It became my answer for people with relationships. I just want a girlfriend. I just want a boyfriend. What do I do? Do what God has asked you to do in the place he's asked you to do it. Let's take a look at Adam. Adam's not the one that recognized he needed a helper. God was. Adam was busy doing what God had asked him to do while he was in the garden, and God said, I will send a helper. You're wondering what you're supposed to do? You're wondering when the next open door is going to come? Do what he's asked you to do in the place he's asked you to do it. That can be as simple as working the job that's right here in New Milford or Scranton or whatever it be. It can be as simple as, you know what, or, well, this isn't simple, but it can be as simply complicated as, I need you to be a stay-at-home parent, to raise this kid up in the way that they should go. That's when he starts opening doors. Let me tell you this. We all have wants, we all have hopes, we all have dreams. One of my dreams in life is to remain the pastor of First Baptist Church. But at the same time, I would adore being a speaker at like youth conventions and youth camps. I love that stuff. I love traveling. I love teenagers and young adults. I love the, the energy that's around them. I thrive off of it. And God gave me a heart for them. And when I was still in college, I was like, that's what I'm going to do with my life. And then God said, now hold on. Because I'm asking you to be the pastor of First Baptist Church in New Milford for as long as I'm going to keep you there. Maybe it's a year. We know that's not true because it's been a year and a half, a little bit more. Maybe it's two, 10, 20, 30, 40. I don't know. We haven't gotten that far yet, and I can't see the future. If you can, don't come talk to me. I don't want to know yet. And maybe, maybe one day he'll open that door for me and allow me to do that sort of stuff. Maybe he won't. But I know that I'm going to miss what God has for me with the open doors right here if I keep looking further down the hallway trying to find the door that I want to be open. So there's a danger that comes with the one who opens doors because we miss the door that's swung wide open because we see a tiny little crack in one that we just might be able to shove open. Be wary of that. But also don't be afraid to walk through the door when it's open because there's nothing that's going to stop you. There's nothing that's going to open a door that God wants shut, and there's nothing that's going to shut a door that he wants open. Be watchful, but remember to do what God has asked you to do in the place he's asked you to do it. Here's the other thing about this church, right? He continues on in that same verse. We're in verse 8 now. And he says, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. What is this little power? It is not referring to the amount of faith that they had. It is not referring to how much authority they had in the city. It is referring to the number of Christians in the church. That is what most scholars think that this is referring to. 
And so what, let me translate. This is what Christ is saying. I'm holding open a door for you because even though there aren't many of you, you have kept my word and did not deny me. Church, I'm going to tell you this morning, your number does not matter when it comes to God moving and shaking. Now, I'm not saying churches shouldn't grow. And I think God loves to see people in his, in his churches on Sunday morning. But if you're sitting there going, man, we're just not big enough to affect something, hogwash. Because God's way bigger than anything. And if he goes, listen, you've kept my name, you're keeping my word, you're fighting for me, I'm going to open doors. And whether there's one of you, 20 of you, 30, 40, 100, 2,000 of you, I'm going to do it. We all know churches of like hundreds of people that don't do anything for the cause of Christ. But they have so many people. Yep, they do. But God's not opening doors for them because they're not keeping his name. And yet, it seems like it's those tiny little grassroots churches that seem to just get people on fire. Because that's what they're doing. Because God opened a door for them because they're keeping his word. That's more important than the number. That's more important than the physical number of people. So that's an open door. Number three here is a synagogue of Satan. We're only going to be on this for like a minute or two because it's not a huge thing, but I wanted to explain what it is. Most scholars, and again, I, I've said that like three times now, I say that because I'm not one of them. I'm not a scholar. So I trust what people who are way smarter than me say about something. Right? So most scholars believe that this is not referring to... Um, you know, an actual, like, people that worship Satan. Most people believe, most scholars believe that these were unsaved Jews who opposed Christianity. Let me point something out to you. In especially the New Testament, right, especially in uh, the Gospels and then in Paul's writings, what is a Jew and what is a Gentile? Jews were Christians. Gentiles were pagans. So most people kind of believe that that's what he's referring to here. That is, Christ is speaking this out and John is writing it down. That that's what this means. That these are, they claim to be Christians, but they're not and they're opposing. Now, maybe they're like the Nicolaitans that we've talked about or any of the other ones. But either way, they're going against Christ. And here's the thing, right? In verse 9 there, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. I don't think this happened yet. I don't think that's a promise that happened in the next three days in Philadelphia. We're going to talk about the crowns here in a second. That's what we're going to end on. Uh, but there are certain rewards when you get to heaven. And I think one of them is that when they bow down before Christ's feet, you're going to be there too. And Christ, they're not going to be bowing down to you like, oh, we're going to worship you. But that's what this kind of says here. I'm going to make them bow down before you. And they're going to know that I have loved you. They're not bowing down to you to make you worthy or glorified or anything like that. They're bowing down because it's a sign of Christ. And he loved them enough to protect them. That what they tried to do failed miserably in the end. Yeah, maybe they killed. Maybe they, 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 they persecuted. But what they were truly attempting to do failed miserably. Let's talk about these rewards now. That was number three. Number four now is the reward. Probably should be the rewards, plural, but you know, English is my first language and I'm terrible at it, so. He goes on here and he's talking about the hour of testing, right? 
Because, uh, verse 10 here, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Your first reward for standing firm, for persevering, you don't have to be here for the crap that's about to hit the fan. As my dad would say it, the proverbial defecation is going to hit the rotary oscillator. And you don't have to be here for it. Later on in this book, right, in this, in this letter that Paul is writing on the island of Patmos, he's going to describe 21 different punishments, that, 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 that judgments that come onto the earth. God is going to pour out his wrath, literally, because seven of them are bold judgments, where angels pour it out onto the earth, literally pour out his wrath on this place. 2,000 plus years worth of wrath. And we don't have to be here to see it, which is a very good thing. Revelation is my favorite book of the Bible. When I was younger, it was because I loved reading those 21 different judgments. I'm like, oh, this is cool. God's got an imagination. Now I'm older, and I'm like, I love this because it reminds me of why I do what I do, because I don't want anybody to have to experience those 21 judgments. Plus, but your first reward is you're kept from that hour of testing. He takes you away. We just sang about it. I'll fly away. Some of us he took earlier than others through death. Some of us he's going to take with his rapture. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know when that rapture is going to happen. But you're kept from the hour of testing, which is, in my opinion, better than any other reward that we're going to get. But here's the thing. He continues on then. And he says, uh, where am I? In verse 11. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Let me be very clear about this. This is not meaning your salvation can be lost. Your salvation is secured if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your crown is not. Throughout the New Testament, we read about, I believe there's seven different crowns that you can earn, literally earn, by what you do on this earth. Now, we're going to take, when we're handed those crowns, we're going to, you know, throw them back at Jesus' feet. You know the band Casting Crowns? That's where they got their name. So you're not going to really keep your crown anyway, but you're going to get it if you keep on. But what Christ is saying here is, hey, listen, yes, you'll get to heaven, but if you don't hold fast to me, you won't, you won't get to crowns. I'll keep them. They're mine anyway. We've said this before. I'll say it again. You and I are going to be judged. It's the Bema seat. Your actions are going to be judged. And I tell you what, I'm going to be 25 tomorrow. I don't really want to look back at my previous 24 years because I did a lot of stupid stuff. I'm dreading the Bema seat. There's going to be some good stuff in it. You know, I'm hoping that he can look at it and go, look at your, your years of ministry. You did so well. You kept my name. You preached my word. And I'm going to feel real nice inside. And then he's going to go, you remember when you did this and this? Remember I told you to do this, but you didn't want to, so you pulled a Jonah and went the other way? And to be honest, at this point in my life, there's going to be way more of those than there are of the good. I dread the Bema Seat because I don't want to be judged. Because my judgment, my view of judgment, is way easier than his. We will be judged, and that crown can be taken away unless you hold fast. See, here's the thing, right? Notice nowhere in here 
does he say, be perfect. Nowhere in there does he say, don't make any mistakes. Nowhere in there does he say, you have to be perfect throughout your life living for me. No, what he says is, hold fast to me. Keep my name. You really think Peter didn't get crowns? But he's the one that was there denying him on three separate occasions right there. While he's dying. You don't have to be perfect. But when you look at the span of your life, did you hold fast to him? I can say without hesitation that in my years, yeah, I held fast to him. There were some times I didn't. There was a fairly large section right in the middle. And it's large because I'm only 24, so a three, four-year section is large. Where I didn't want anything to do with him. But I can look back over the course of my life and I can say, yeah, I held fast. And I'm hoping that when I'm 80, 90, whatever years old, or if I get raptured before that, whatever, when I get to look back at my life, I can say, yes, God, I, I sinned against you so many times. But I held fast to you in the end. And I'm praying I get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in, here's your crown. I'll be like, oh, that's a nice little wreath and just throw it back at him. Because he's the one that deserves it anyway. He's the only one worthy of any honor and glory and praise anyway. We talked about patterns the past, the past few weeks at times. And I want to point out to you the pattern at the end of every single one of these letters. The pattern has been, hold fast. And I'll hold fast to you. Hold fast, keep my word, and I, I'm going to reward you. One last thing before we, before we end. In the end there, he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That sounds nice. I really like architecture. Pillars are great. What does that mean? Back then, and I mean, you see it even today, right? In loving memory of uh, uh, all of the, the, the stained glass windows, various other things around this church building are in memory of somebody either because they donated the money for it, they donated the actual thing, or they were such an influential part of the church that when they passed, you went, we need to remember them. This, it was the same thing back then, except they didn't do that as much. It would be if you had a building or a temple. You'd have a pillar that was dedicated to somebody. And in this new temple, in the new Jerusalem, and there is a new Jerusalem because here's the thing. If you're wondering about this earth, it goes bye-bye. He destroys it, creates a new one. We read that in, I think it's chapter 21 of Revelation. 21, 22, somewhere right around there. And he creates a new Jerusalem. And there's going to be a new temple in that city. And he says, listen, I'm going to have a pillar with your name on it. Now, here's the thing, right? That sounds really cool. We're not even probably going to realize it because we'll be too busy worshiping. You know, we're not going to walk into the temple and be like, oh, that one's mine. Because again, right, God's the only one worthy of any honor and glory and praise. But it's just another promise to say, hey, listen, you know what? You stand firm, and there's a reward at the end. The ultimate reward is me, not me. That's God talking. Your ultimate reward is not Pastor Sam. Thank God for that. Your ultimate reward is him and being with him for eternity. And yeah, there's other rewards. There's the pillars. There's the crowns. We read, I think it was last week or the week before, you get this white stone with a name on it that only you know. Right? There's all kinds of stuff. But you know what? Toss it all away. 
because the real reward is him. So here's my question to you guys this week. As we finish up in Philadelphia, we have a little power. Look around. We're not going to hide that. But a little power is more than enough for God to do something. So are we, as a church, going to stand firm for him, keep his name, work for him, and watch as he changes everything around us? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this life that we get to live. It's hard at times. No denying that. And yeah, thank you for this church. It's small, but you know what? You don't ask us to do everything. You just ask us to trust you, to work for you, and you're the one who's going to do it. Thank you for the rewards. Yeah, they're going to be good. They're going to be great. But thank you that we're going to get to be with you. And help us to look forward to that. Help us, encourage us, work in us to keep your name till the bitter end, the very end. Father, we love you, we praise you, and it's in the name of your Son we pray, amen.